I've also decided I'm going to speak like this from now on, as I've listened to the dropout, and it worked for What's-Her-Face. Although to be fair, I, only, I still have one episode left. Isn't it good? Eh, it's a little boring compared to like some of the other similar but ones. It's bonkers that it got that far. Oh, yeah, for like, sure. That's what I'm talking about. Like, Walgreens put this in their stores without yes. doing their due diligence. Yes, all on the strength of one woman's like personality, pretty much. Yes, it's bonkers that like a Walgreens would just on the strength of her personality. Yes. Right? And this, like, board backing her of this old white guy going, like, wow, you know. Yeah. She's the real deal. Like, especially if you look at how most industries, women have a hard time being taken at all seriously, being let in the door, given the money, letting them. But that's why she dropped her voice to sound like this, I think. <laughs> to, like, fit in with that. But, like, the obsession with the, the um, Steve Jobs... Really giant red flag. <laughs> was creepy, right? Yes. Yes, for sure. Like, I just, I just, the do, the lack of due diligence on yes. this just boggled my mind. Well, also the family doctors who relied on brand new, unproven technology, like, they're at fault. Seriously, like, oh, yeah. I hope if you're going to sue Thanos for giving you, like, a misdiagnosis based off of your results, you're also suing the doctor for having recommended you go test with Thanos. Or your doctor said, go get tested, and your pharmacist said, or you saw this in a Walgreens. That's on you. Yes. Yeah, for sure. But, like, if it sounds too good to be true, it is. Yeah, but it's, like, it also, people look at it like it's in a Walgreens. Obviously, someone did their due diligence. Nobody did their due diligence. Unless it's true. Like, it just... (sighs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to this, the new episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And this is our first post- Women's History Month episode. Yes. So I'm very excited because I was not lying when I said I was going to go left turn on this one and away from the positivity and more towards the negativity and the darkness. And also, it's the first podcast since your month of aggressive positivity. Yes, but I'm trying to keep up with the aggressive positivity. That was more of a lifestyle change. <laughs> and so but just not sunny. with this. Just not with this. This needed to be like the one drop in that I got to have. <laughs> Uh, Before we dive into our stories, though, I want to tell you about the Imperfect Me podcast. Yes, I was going to ask you about it. Yeah, so um, Callan, who is the host of that show, put out a call on our Lady Pod Squad network asking for women with interesting stories of like an imperfect time in their life to share with her. So I very selflessly slash self-promotingly stepped forward and (laughs) volunteered and she was lovely enough to interview me and it was great and I got to talk about the dumpster fire that was 2014 starting with the the slide into depression the complete wreck of my knee and then the full explosion of depression and all the craziness and clusterfuckery that resulted from that I'm halfway through it oh yes there you go I haven't started yet I have got sidetracked today but yes but I got 236 emails compressed down to 10. So that's that's a, quite a, a drive through your workday. Uh, so I don't know. Do I sound batshit crazy or? No, 
I just got to the point where you're talking about your surgery. Right. But I can relate because 2013 was my dumpster fire of a year. Yes. And that's how our friendship started. Yeah. And 2014, it just got out of hand uh, with the friendship and the idea for this podcast was born. Yeah. So, yeah. I remember picking you up from that. Uh, from the hospital. From it the was hospital. a fucking nightmare it all was. around. <laughs> That's the worst emergency room on the face of the planet. Also not the best nursing staff, because they literally watched me roll past them with, like, tears in my eyes in a wheelchair and just stood around gossiping. <laughs> I was like, no one's going to help. There's, like, four of you just clustered. And I love nurses, but I was not impressed. <laughs> also, the pain meds hadn't kicked in, so... <laughs> so the whole point of that podcast was to take the negative and make it a positive... But for our show today, I'm going from the positive to the negative. So there you go. Buckle up. Uh, Andy knows what I'm doing because when I was telling her, like, shit's going dark. So <laughs> buckle up. Uh, and I told her what my topic was. And she is masterminded today's episode. So has kindly offered to let me go first. So mine's batshit crazy. Oh, boy. We're, we're going to have fun yeah. in this recording session. It's, it's funny batshit. Oh, good. But she batshit. Oh, good. Good, good, good. All right. So. In that case, I get to start, and my story comes from an inspiration that was just totally, totally odd. I was watching this episode of 48 Hours Mystery where this guy fell off the balcony of his cruise ship while on his honeymoon, and then the show just featured the bungled attempt of the criminal investigative systems to figure out whether it was suicide or not, like like what had actually happened. And it reminded me of a documentary I had seen like years ago about the disaster that is cruise ships. And I decided I'm going to share with everyone why you should not take cruises. I liked the only cruise I was ever on. Yeah. See, between me, like, I hit that documentary at a very formative age. Mm. Like, so between that and Titanic, which came out around the same time. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Same reason why I won't travel through Southeast Asia. I saw Broke Down Palace at a really formative age and just can't because I'm convinced I'll wake up with a cockroach in my ear. I'm out. <laughs> well, if you're not carrying coke in your bag, you should be fine. But I am dumb enough to do it accidentally. That is true. It would be really on brand. <laughs> <laughs> so as a public service, today part of our show is me telling you why to script the cruise for the next time that you're planning a holiday. So some background on the cruise industry first. For centuries, ships were the only way to travel around the world, but they were primarily for commercial purposes and passengers were a secondary thought. In 1840s, the Cunard Line, which was actually a rebranding from a line called the North American Royal Mail Steam Packet Line. so That was a mouthful and a half. Cunard sounds a little bit better. Uh, they pioneered the idea of having a pleasure cruise and really kicked off the industry in the 1840s. And within 20 years, luxury cruising was a thing. It got to the point where the British Medical Journal around the era uh, endorsed cruising for curative purposes. So... Enjoy the sea air to clear the tuberculosis out of your lungs, that type of thing. <laughs> the same thing as they would go down to the Mediterranean. Exactly, yes. Uh, the Germans, those marvels of engineering that they are, created the first superliner in the early 20th century, and they were designed to limit the discomfort of traveling the open seas while also being hella fancy. Speed was still the big selling point on these ships, however. Cunard was the first big name in the industry, but then along came J.P. Morgan with his White Star Line, and that was the line that popularized the formality and elegance of cruising. So if you've ever been to the Maritimes, particularly Nova Scotia, you know that Cunard and White Star are the mm -hmm. big cruising names. So 
J.P. Morgan, which I was, I did not know J.P. Morgan was the white star. I did not know that until yeah. then. I knew white star, yeah. but I didn't but know. who was behind it, who bankrolled yeah. it, yeah. So That doesn't surprise me. That man was like, rolling in yes, money. Yes, exactly. At that point, creature comforts became the focus of cruises, and pesky things like safety were backburnered. So we should it's all ask James die. Cameron how all that ended. Yeah. The wars in the um, 19... 19- 10s and 1940s interrupted cruise liners as a like a building industry and also as the travel because you couldn't travel the open seas they were getting these pesky torpedoes knocked into the side of them with regularity but the interwar years so between the two world wars were the golden age of cruising by the 1950s however air travel was becoming the preferred method of travel for long distances and the passenger cruise lines started to die out It was the 1960s, however, that those still in operations realized they had to adapt or die, and so they started offering vacation trips in the Caribbean, marketing themselves as fun ships to those that missed out on the heyday of the intercontinental cruise. So if you heard about it as a child or when you weren't rich enough to afford it, now a lot of those people could. By the 1970s, the modern cruise industry was born when the journey became the point of the vacation rather than the destination, and was aided by such hit pop culture movements like the Love Boat, which actually, yeah, which actually ran from 1977 to 1986. Huh. I didn't realize it was nine years on the air. That's no, impressive. and I can't say that I've ever seen an episode other than I can sing a couple of bars of the theme song. And I refer to myself as Gopher every time I have to run some sort of like social event for work or anything like that because he was the cruise director oh, or the, no gopher was the bartender but i like him better than the cruise director i've seen an episode <laughs> so in 2019 the cruise ship industry is expected to generate 15.2 billion dollars us in wages like we earning power uh, in 2000 people spent 16.6 billion on cruises by 2010, that number jumped to $37.9 billion, so a 128% increase in 10 years. Passenger numbers have grown on average at a rate of 7.2% per year since the 1990s. And between 1980 and 2009, 176 million people went on cruises, 40% of those between 2004 and 2009. So... That number between 1980 and 2009 was 176 million, and 40 of them were in the last five years of that period. So it's a huge explosion. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, though, leading up to the 2009 number was when everyone could get as much credit as they wanted with very little backing. So Yeah, but also like that's the sort of boom of the upper middle class. Also, you got to look at the age of the baby boomers who have really funded yes. a lot of that traveling. Yes. So. But also you could get a credit card with no collateral on that it. That is true. Yes. So there are pros to taking a cruise. I have two of them because that's not what we're here for. Uh, the first one is you get to visit multiple destinations on one vacation and you only have to unpack and pack once. Also, they're hella cheap. They can be hella cheap. They can be. Well, we'll discuss. But fuck all that noise. Let's find out why cruise ships are scary and they scare the bejesus out of me. So my first point is that it's fucking expensive. Not only are you paying for the vacation, but sometimes, depending on the cruise line, you're paying for the flight to get to the boarding spot. Some cruise lines. Most of them, it's a package deal. Yeah. But sometimes it's not. Would you like daylight and fresh air with your vacation? 
Well, then you're going to pay a premium for either an above the waterline room or a room that's on the outside of the ship with a balcony or a window or any sort of opening to the outside. Uh, however, balconies are often obstructed by girders. They'll have lifeboats beneath them because that whole Titanic thing kind of taught a bunch of people a bunch of lessons. They're sometimes open to the decks above them. So while you're standing out in your boxers and bra having your morning coffee, the looky-loos upstairs might be looking down your cleave. So if you really need this feature of your vacation, be sure to check the ship's floor plan before booking to see what it is that you're actually paying for. That's on the ship. Then there is the onshore excursions. So as a fun fact, the small print in most of the sales agreement for your cruise tickets will usually give them an out. if they have to stop any or all of the ship's scheduled destinations. So if you happen to run into bad weather on the trip and they have to divert to another port, but you really wanted to see a certain port and now you're going to miss it. It's not their fault. They don't have to reimburse you. That's just part of the small print in your agreement. Uh, Also, if you happen to be traveling in an area of the country that's a little politically dicey, for example, you're doing a tour of the Med and suddenly there's a riot in Libya or Egypt and they decide not to put into port, then they're just not putting into port and you're SOL on that one. So because of that fine print in your sales agreement, there's usually no compensation for any missed opportunities. But let's say that you do make it ashore and you happen to lose track of time. Too bad, so sad for you because one captain is not going to stop the entire ship's schedule for five or six people when there's a few thousand people. They'll wait a while. But But. (laughs) there are limits to their patience. If you're on a tour, like on a boat-sponsored event, they'll usually wait if you're running late, like no problem. But if you just happen to wander off and lose track of time, they're heading out without you, and it's your responsibility to make it up to the next port. (laughs) So good luck. Yes. (laughs) Onboard diversions can be expensive too. These things are usually cashless, so you're putting everything on your room charge. And so that includes um, soft drinks, for example. I remember my mom went on a cruise and paid like $300 for the right to have soft drinks. Yeah, for most week. cruises have don't have soft drinks or alcohol. You can add a package. They're yes. usually not that expensive. The oh, cruise okay. and I, my mom and I went on, we didn't right. bother because neither one of us are drinkers. Yeah. When you go through to get on, they have all these spots where you can buy. So I think I bought like Coke and... I honestly only had one Coke a day, and then I just bought, like, because we were out every day. Yeah. We were on a ship that we only did one at sea day. Oh, okay. We, that's sort of the way yeah. we planned it, and um, so it was lovely. Like, to us, it wasn't that big of a deal. My mom bought a bottle of wine at dinner, and then they would usually keep it for you, and they bring it out every night at dinner. Oh, that's not bad. Because we had, like, a, a time that we were seating, so we yeah. did the early seating. We had the same table with the same lovely... Our two Georgia peaches, one lady only wore white. They were both from Georgia. Oh, boy. And then this other elder, el- older couple. But, right. like, they would bring out my mom's bottle of wine. And, you know, that lasted her three or four nights. And If, however, you're big drinkers. Yes. You, you just happen to be charging stuff to your room nonstop. You did not buy the package. You don't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a lot of these places also have casinos. Yes. So I never gamble at a casino in anything but cash for a very good reason. It's so that I don't lose track of my rent or mortgage payment. So onboard diversions can be expensive and they're shopping too. Lots of shopping. So 
these trips are not all expenses paid kind of deals. And one of the websites I was reading for this story (laughs) had the best way that they put it. They said, you will be nickeled and dimed for everything from soft drinks to the internet. So be prepared. Yeah, but some uh, some hotel or some resorts are like that too at times. Yeah. So that's one downside. Another downside, and this leads me back to the 48 hours mystery, is the crime of it all. Think of how many people are actually on a cruise ship. They're about the size of a small city, like a small town. Mm -hmm. And you have both passengers and crew. So the odds are pretty good that there is a criminal element present. And just what shade and flavor that criminal element takes varies, just as it does amongst the general population. According to Charles Lipcon, a maritime, I love this guy's title, a maritime attorney from Miami specializing in cruise ship crimes, there's a real need to be careful. He's been involved in cases that include gang rapes of young girls and date rapes and Uh. all the way up to just petty theft kind of things. Dozens of sexual assaults on cruise ships are reported each year, but oftentimes it's up to poorly trained or underqualified cruise line security guards to investigate what actually happened. Cruise line employees have no real incentive to help an investigation, but lots of incentives to hinder or hurry them because they have a schedule to keep. So crime scenes are rarely preserved or made available to qualified investigators. Just because you left from a U.S. port, as most Caribbean cruises do, most like popular ones, or a European port if you're cruising the Med, doesn't mean that you're actually in that country for the remainder of your okay. trip. In fact, you're subject to the laws of whatever country the ship happens to be registered in. So one of the most popular countries to do this from is Liberia. Do you happen to know what the criminal code of Liberia looks like? No. Neither do I. And if you're going to fucking go to Liberia, which is what you're doing when you get on one of these ships, you probably should. <laughs> Another popular one is the Cayman Islands. And Panama. And Panama yeah. for registrations. For of... tax purposes. Yeah. yeah. Which I talk about. So you are now on a ship, which is technically Liberia. Bonkers. Uh, they're your governing body for the duration of the chip. So check them out. Find out what exactly... I mean, they're going to get real loosey-goosey with those laws, but as soon as the fire's put to them, that's what counts. The FBI does have jurisdiction over crimes that are perpetrated against U.S. citizens on the high seas. But if you're not a U.S. citizen, that doesn't apply. Uh, and it also doesn't mean a whole lot if you are a U.S. citizen. Great. Because the captains are on a tight schedule and every delay costs money. So they do not care. They don't want the publicity either of murders and rapes and thefts of their ships. So they'll sweep it under the rug and hurry it up as much as possible. There's a website run by an association called the International Cruise Victims Association. And if you're feeling too upbeat with your life, you should really head over there and scroll through some of the stories. I don't go into too much detail because this was at the end of my trip down this rabbit hole and even I was feeling a little the aggressive positivity was like trying to kick back in and so and suffice it to say there's lots of people that go missing from ships that report illness or injuries many resulting in death sexual assaults and other crimes like robbery there are key themes to these stories and their testimonials like people writing about what happened to them key themes include cruise liners that look the other way like the officials looking the other way rushing already ineffective investigations, refusing to cooperate beyond the initial incidents, and silence. Like a lot of these cruise lines, once you're off the boat, 
like your family members are off the boat. Ghosts. That's it. You're done. It's just not a good look for the industry, so they're always trying to hide it. If you're the unlucky victim of a crime on a ship, it is the captain's decision whether or not anyone gets incarcerated or held in the brig until such a time as they could be turned over to local authorities. They have no real incentive to do so again. Lots of incentives not to. And you just have to hope that you hit lucky with a somebody who has a bit of honor and sense of community. So yeah, if you're going to go, be careful. I think you could even make an argument, though, that the ship's employees are victims of the cruise line's criminal pursuits of profit. So crews are subject to the labor laws of the country where the ship is licensed from. What do you think Liberia's employment standards look like? Not great. Probably not great. According to cruiselawnews.com, crew members could work 10 to 12 hours a day for up to 10 months of the year. They say, quote, if you're a cleaner on the grandeur of the sea, there are 35 public bathrooms and you're only making about $560 a month and you may have an assistant, you may not. So I guess they figure you're getting room and board for quote unquote free so they can underpay you. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because you're the labor laws you're under are the registration country's license or laws. Royal Caribbean is one of these lines that is incorporated through Liberia where the minimum wage is four to six dollars per day, not per hour, per day. Ouch. Carnival is registered out of Panama where the minimum wage ranges from $1.22 to $2.36 per hour. And Norwegian lines are registered in Bermuda where there's currently no minimum wage standards at all. So they get to set their their tune and sing to it. Another thing to be watchful for is your health. Because on cruise ships, viruses spread like wildfire. Yes. Food poisoning is a constant threat and a worry. Uh, Did the lady in the line for the buffet ahead of you do a really good job washing her hands after she dropped some kids off at the pool? That's always a, a dicey question. Are you sure? And now do you want to handle those tongs to pick up the food that you're then going to put in your face? Maybe, maybe not. Good luck not shitting your brains out later on that night. In 2014, nine norovirus outbreaks were reported to the CDC's Vessel Sanitation Program. Were reported, (laughs) maybe not necessarily occurred, but they got bad enough that they couldn't be hidden and it had to be reported. And uh, fun fact, norovirus can be resistant to common disinfectants. Yay! The CDC, however, does recommend that cruise ship passengers use antibacterial hand wash after every trip to the bathroom and both before and after eating, just in case. But here's the really terrifying part to me, and this is what has stuck with me from that documentary I saw, That Formative Age. And that is, what do you know about the doctor that is on board your ship? Probably not a whole lot. And there's absolutely no guarantee that that person is licensed through the country the ship departed from or through any country for that matter. Remember our buddy Charles Lipcon, the the maritime lawyer? Here's what he said about the practice. Historically, doctors were signed up to work three to six months at a time, paid a salary, and part of the proceeds of what they sold in the ship's infirmaries. Already dicey. He goes on to say, they could be licensed anywhere, including in the country of the ship's flag. The cruise line is not responsible for bad medical care as long as they hire a qualified physician. So what does the medical regulatory college in Liberia look like? I don't know. Probably not great. As we discussed in our botched plastic surgery discussion, you got to be careful with these overseas medical procedures. 
Lipcom has even seen one case where the ship's doctor didn't even have a license, but was just a graduate from a medical school in the Dominican Republic. I mean, I'm pretty sure you and I, if we had a big enough credit card, could also be a red, just like a graduate from some colleges in the Dominican Republic. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> you get sick on board, there's no guarantee that you're going to get any sort of qualified treatment. But on top of viruses, you know what else spreads like crazy on cruise ships? Bed bugs. <laughs> there are lots of people on the ship. Odds are someone has come into contact with bed bugs at some point somewhere. And the need to turn over rooms really quickly for the next voyage means that they're not doing deep cleans between every single one. So be careful. <laughs> so for that, just go on a cruise in Australia because, or New Zealand because they're really picky about screening luggage and things coming in. Yes, because they're so, a contained island ecosystem. Yes. Fair. Good point. Because they would catch any sort of critters coming in on luggage. Unless you're Bart Simpson and you bring a frog. And then, SOL. Well, that's Democratic. how the rabbits. That's how yes, they, that's how rabbits became an issue. Yes, and that's yeah. why they have a rabbit-proof fence. <laughs> Next on my list of dicey things to keep in mind if you're going on cruises is uh, shitty captains. So not only are they the law of the ship, but uh, they are humans and they can make mistakes too. Just ask the passengers of the Costa Concordia, mm. which is the most recent and most famous, oh my fucking God, what happened incident. Built in 2005 for the Italian branch of the Carnival Cruises, the Costa Concordia could carry up to 3,700 passengers. And by comparison, according to Britannica, which I love that they knew that people were going to ask this, the Titanic carried just over 2,400 passengers. So quite a bit of a differential there. On January 13th, 2012, the Concordia left a port in Italy at approximately 7.18 p.m. On board were just over 1,000 crew and 3,200 passengers. As the ship approached Jigilio Island, several hours later, it deviated from the standard course, moving closer to the small Tuscan island for a maritime salute, which is a common practice that includes the ship sounding its horn, and the Concordia had performed that move several times in the past. The area was known for rock outcroppings, and at some point, a formation was noticed in the ship's path. The captain, who had been captain on that ship for about seven years, ordered a change in course, but due to language issues, the Indonesian helmsman steered the boat in the opposite direction. And it took 13 seconds to correct the maneuver. And that was enough time for the bow's bow to swing clear, but for the stern to collide with the reef at approximately quarter to 10. Confusion on the bridge resulted in conflicting orders, but the damage had been done. The port side of the ship had suffered a 53-meter tear down the side. Very similar to the Titanic, actually. An assessment of the damage revealed that the first five compartments, including the engine room, were flooded, and soon the ship lost power. Uh, then the rudders stopped functioning because the engines were out, and the ship couldn't be steered. However, the wind got the rudders stuck in such a position that the Concordia turned back into the island and it eventually ran aground. At 10.39 p.m., the first rescue vessel arrived and approximately 15 minutes later, the captain ordered that the ship be abandoned, although according to reports, lifeboats had already been launched. So clearly panic was reigning and people were getting off before the order had been given. At around 11.20, the captain left the bridge and soon abandoned the ship himself. He subsequently, this I loved, he subsequently claimed that he fell off the Concordia and happened to land in a lifeboat, that he wasn't abandoning it, just coincidental. 
And approximately 13 minutes after that, the last of the crew members departed the bridge, even though approximately 300 people were still on the vessel. At uh, about 40 minutes past midnight, Coast Guard called the captain, who was in a lifeboat with other officers of the ship, and ordered him to return to the vessel to oversee the evacuation, and he very famously refused. At quarter past six the next morning, search efforts were temporarily suspended, but the following day, divers rescued three more people from inside the boat. Can you imagine being on the boat for like almost 12, 18 hours? Ugh. There were no remaining survivors at that point. 32 people died in the disaster, and the last body wasn't recovered until November 2014. So almost two years later. Raised the ship. Yeah. In February 2015, the captain was convicted of manslaughter as well as causing the wreck and abandoning ship and sentenced to more than 16 years in prison. He appealed the verdict, but it was upheld in 2017, and he began serving his sentence shortly thereafter. As someone who has friends who've gone through school, like I went to my first college was Marine Institute. And a lot of my friends were in the nautical science program, which mm-hmm. ultimately your goal is to become a captain of a ship. And mm-hmm. this is the course you take to do it. Right. Um, they would have all been just appalled. Oh, you just don't abandon ship. Yeah. Like, that's like, like the first thing, even as a civilian, that's the first thing you learn about captains. Yeah. <laughs> and especially like first mates, all their officers, they should have stuck around. Yeah. Um, the people who really organized the most most of the people to get off the evacuation effort was a guitarist and a musician and a magician (laughs) see good people in the world (laughs) because they could command an audience they were able to do things on the fly like other people were just flummoxed like what do i do it it was listing so all of a sudden your world is literally yeah crooked oh boy I don't like the water. I have a fear of the water. I don't really like boats. It's amazing yeah. that I even went on a cruise. But uh, yeah, that would. It also doesn't really matter what part of the world you're in. When you're talking like ocean water, it's it's cold. Yeah. Like, ugh. At least in the Caribbean, it's warm. Like home, if you went down, like like the Titanic. Oh, Those yeah. people froze. Oh, but we're talking about differences of minutes and hours. Like you will yeah. eventually freeze to death. Yes. In the Caribbean Ocean, too. Like. Yeah. But shit gets cold. <laughs> even the harbor to which I grew up, it doesn't get much above freezing in mm. July. Yeah. Because it is deep and it is cold. Yeah. Why you never swim in the ocean? Up next, on my list of reasons to stay off ships, uh, you're in the middle of fucking nowhere if things go sideways. Mm-hmm. So a power failure at home or at a hotel is inconvenient, but can you imagine that happening out in the middle of the ocean where there's no one nearby and nowhere to go for help? Come on. Like, come on. So you lose power on a ship. What happens? Well, to start off with, you're generally going to be dead in the water. And want to know what that's like? Check out the recent clips of that boat that was stranded off of Norway last month. In rolling seas, everything is just thrown back and forth, because usually when the power goes, the stabilizers go with it. So there's nothing keeping you upright. And so you're just rocking with the waves. And did you see that footage? Yeah, I saw some of it. It was bonkers. So like I said, without the stabilizers and also without forward movement, you're really at the mercy of the waves. This isn't just a possibility if you lose power, though. Researchers at MUN, which is Memorial University of Newfoundland, found yeah, whoop, whoop, uh, found that winds of 50 knots is enough to cause a ship to buck, list, or be damaged. So 50 knots is quite a lot, but it's also not uncommon yep. out in the open ocean. Uh, no power means no refrigeration. 
So I hope you enjoy sandwiches made with questionable meats and cheeses and or fruits and veggies that probably couldn't be sanitized properly. And now we're back to norovirus. And everybody's eating ice cream for the first hour. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's not just a question of power. Just like at home, sometimes plumbing gets fucked up. So have you ever been trapped on a floating city with a few thousand people, none of whom can flush the toilet? Me either. And I'm not looking to be. Mm-mm. And as anyone who has studied history slash medicine knows, as soon as sanitation conditions start to go, the communicable diseases follow closely. Uh, case in point, in 2013, a Carnival cruise ship experienced an engine fire, which knocked out all of the ship systems, and passengers were on board, stuck for more than a week, on what became unaffectionately known as the Poop Cruise, since people were shitting in buckets. <laughs> Speaking of which, people. So many people on cruises. Can you imagine if you inadvertently booked yourself on, like, a Nickelback cruise or something like that? <laughs> Jesus, I'd be overboard so fast. The funny thing is, Dan and I really would like to do the uh, 311 cruise, like the music. Oh, cruise. as long as you enjoy whatever like themed cruise you're on, yes. it's fine. But if it is not your theme and you're stuck with fans of these people, and like there's just so many people on a cruise ship, which is a very small space. Holy shit. Like, no. Like, even if it's just a regular cruise, most people are there kind of in a party mood and the hooch is flowing and late hours and so many people and irresponsibility and this feeling of vacation and spring breakishness. Cruises are not the lay in the sun and relax solution to a vacation you think that they're going to be. Like, it's just not feasible. Also, the cruise industry is a volume business, so the more people you have on each ship, the higher the profit. So in a lot of cases, it can be a sardine can situation. Pun intended. The cruise mom and I went on, like, we were so, we were laughing because we were in bed at, like, I think there was one night we stayed up till 11 o'clock. Oh. And tried to get into a comedy show, and it was full, so we just went to bed. Oh. But we were up to watch the <laughs> ship dock. My mom was up to watch the ship dock in every port, and then right. we got up and got our early breakfast and was out. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, we had talked about the listing and the, the rolling. Uh, seasickness is common in about 33% of people. Um, it's odd because they say you shouldn't worry about seasickness on a cruise. It's a massive superstructure. It has stabilizers. But in reality, about 33% of people will still experience seasickness. If like we left Puerto Rico mm-hmm. and leaving Puerto Rico that first night can be quite rough because it's You're getting your sea legs. No, but it's just that oh. leaving there tends to be not, it tends to be quite rough seas yeah. for some reason as you're leaving for about the first few hours. Hmm. So I took gravel, slept through my mother snoring. It was awesome. <laughs> I didn't notice. Just take gravel, people. Yeah. Uh, if you see the doctor on board, he might suggest you buy some from the infirmary and he'll pocket a bit of a kickback on that. Bring your own gravel, people. Just bring gravel if you're going on a cruise. (laughs) So let's say you hear all that and you're still not sold on the fact that cruises aren't the devil's playground and you're still willing to book your own trip. (laughs) Let's talk about the impact that you're going to have on the local environment. So in terms of the physical environment, these vessels still use fossil fuels to move them. Generally, they'll use a diesel engine, gas turbine combination, Rarely one or the other, but usually a combination, and neither are good. On average, a seven-day cruise for one person will use the same amount of fossil fuel that that one person will use in 18 days on land. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. And then times that by the two to 4,000 people 
on the ship. The pollution expelled from ships results in a sulfur which, when mixed with water, of which there's plenty of, results in acidic rain, which leads to deforestation, destruction of aquatic life, and the corrosion of man-made materials. So to address this, the International Maritime Organization announced that all vessels must switch to cleaner fuel sources by 2020, but they've already found a way to cheat that requirement by installing filters to quote-unquote scrub the resulting smoke, but then they just dump the secondary products of the smoke into the ocean since that's not regulated at all. Yeah, and even when it is regulated, it's ridiculously hard to um, find, even in yes. Canada. Like, yep. it's ridiculous. We have a system set up, and they never do anything about it. Yep. You can follow that oil slick right to that fucking tanker, <laughs> and they will do dick shit about it. Yep. Some cruises practice unethical waste disposal practices. So a 3,000-person cruise produces about 210 gallons of sewage waste a week. And we're talking toilet runoff, but also gray water. So yeah. the shower water, that type of thing. Most vessels have a sanitation system that separates solids from liquids and sterilizes both. And then they burn the solids and dump the liquids into the ocean. So while you're swimming around that beach with your cruise liner dock next door, odds are you're swimming in quote unquote sanitized pee from your own boat. I mean, like they dump it further out, but like yeah. it, it all melds <laughs> at a certain point. <laughs> The two most popular cruise lines, Royal Caribbean and Carnival, both received a D score from environmental advocacy group Friends of Earth, which tabulated a score based on sewage treatment, air pollution reduction, water quality compliance, and transparency. So maybe avoid those two cruise ships if you have a bit of a soul and don't want to kill turtles. My, my goal is if I ever go on like a big cruise to do like a P&O or um, what's the other one? They're like luxury, luxury, mm -hmm. or white sail, which are like big sailboats. They hardly have. There's only like a couple hundred people on them. Right. The piano one we saw when we were on our cruise was not that much smaller than um, the Carnival cruise that we were on. Like the ship wasn't that much smaller, but it had like a quarter of the people on it. But it was also mm -hmm. on a round the world trip. Ooh. So it left from England and goes to Singapore. Oh yeah. So there you go. I mean, I could not imagine doing that. It was like that was 55 days or... Well, I still think you're bonkers for wanting to do any cruise after this. That's but, true. Uh, so we talked the physical environment, but let's talk about the political environments too, because cruise lines are basically in the business of bribing local officials. They'll invest in infrastructure in the areas where they want to dock and will threaten to boycott areas that raise fees for the stocking permission. For example... In 2004, the Florida Caribbean Cruise Association's 12 members threatened to boycott Antigua and Barbuda because the countries raised their port charges from $1 per person to $2.50 per person. And the threat worked because the ports backed off. So obviously, if you're dumping 4,000 people for a short period of time onto these small islands, like they have to get the money back to put up with the infrastructure changes and updates and um, upkeep that are required. So if you have a ship of, if you're paying $2,000 to dock at a ship, it's not that bad if all of a sudden you have to pay $5,000. Like, you're not, it's, it's ridiculous. In Belize, Royal Caribbean invested $18 million to co-own the Fort Street Tourism Village, which I guess is just nearby the port where you get off and spend money. The port charge is $5 per person, 
to dock in this area, $4 of which goes to the tourism village, meaning that Royal Caribbean recouped its money within six to seven years. So it basically paid itself for the privilege of docking here. When a ship docks for a few hours, cruise lines give passengers suggestions of what they can do with their time before returning to the boat. But instead of offering sincere recommendations, they will employ a pay-to-play model with vendors on the island. And if the vendors pay the cruise line to recommend them, oh look, that's what gets recommended. Because of where the ships are usually licensed from, the parent companies pay little to no corporate tax. Carnival, for example, is licensed out of Panama that has absolutely no corporate income tax at all, which means it pockets all $3 billion in profits that it Good makes per Lord. year. Yeah. So, I mean, look, all of that is bad, but like those are worst case scenarios. You are not going to hit yeah, all of, all of those odds of hitting even one are fairly low. Millions of people go on cruises every year without issue, no doubt. But do you really want to be involved with one of these things when it goes sideways? Oh, God, no. no. Yeah, I don't, which is why when I learn about it via the news on Twitter or whatever, I go, huh, that's a shame. And then go back to my non-norovirus victimized bed bug infested seasick day. That is my story about cruise ships. Everyone, please stay the fuck off them. Agreed. If you do go and get into like this poop cruise situation, though, <laughs> text me so that I can laugh at you because you've been warned. <laughs> so how am I going to tie these two together? Yes, please do. We just talked about a cruise. So the Flat Earthers. Oh, God. They are planning a cruise. Oh, boy. Wait, wait. Are they planning for the cruise to go off the edge of this earth? <laughs> well, they want to. So there's some confusion as to the point of said cruise. Right. Some say that it is just a two-day fun cruise for like-minded people. Others say that they're going to cruise to the edge of the earth to prove that it is flat and that there's this 150-foot wall of ice around it. Like, cool, cool, cool. We're the Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> like James Cook never like bumped into it accidentally or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this okay. is why I wanted you to go first. Yes. And can I also say that I know you love the flat earthers to the point where they are your favorite form of distraction. They are. <laughs> I love these assholes. <laughs> so this is the one thing, like you said, that I just can't believe still exists as like a belief system. <laughs> it's yeah, it's true. Like the ancient Greeks demonstrated that the earth is a, as a sphere more than 2000 years ago. Not to mention, like, gravity. Yeah. You know, wouldn't work if, if our world wasn't spherical. Like, so many things wouldn't work. But they have some answers. Okay, good. <laughs> so what what does a flat earther believe? Well, they believe the earth is flat, obviously. <laughs> they don't that, believe in public education. <laughs> well, that the earth is a disk with the Arctic Circle at the center and Antarctica is basically this 150-foot wall of ice around them that keeps the oceans in. Okay. So picture a plate. Uh-huh. The Arctic Circle is the middle, with Antarctica being the entire rim. Okay. Uh, so that Earth's day and night cycle is explained by the position that the sun and moon are spheres... Measuring 32 miles that move in circles 3,000 miles or 4,826 kilometers above the planet, above us. So they're spherical. Yes, but we are not. We're not. Okay. So they act like spotlights and the moon and sun light up different portions of the planet in a 24-hour cycle. But that doesn't... 
And that lunar, there's an anti-moon that obscures the moon during lunar eclipses. And that's round. (laughs) But like, but no, like, take two flashlights and point it at a plate and right away you're horseshitting. Because like, you can, you would, no, 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 Andy. (laughs) I answer for these quacks theories. (laughs) I have no answers. Uh, Earth's gravity is an illusion. Of course. According to them, objects do not ascend downwards, but that the Earth is accelerating upwards at 32 feet per second. What's underneath our discus Earth? Giant turtle. We don't know, uh, but they they think more than likely it's rock. So it just, like, comes down to a point or something? Yeah. It's just flat. Flat with, like, junk underneath rock. Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And as we will talk about later, that all pictures of Earth as a globe or a severe spherical are photoshopped. Of course. So this more modern idea of flat Earth, because as I said, like flat Earth was an idea many, 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 many years ago when they honestly thought the Earth was flat before they start exploring and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The more modern idea of flat Earth Theology was started in England by a writer, Samuel Rowbotham, who published a pamphlet called Zeothetic Astronomy in 1849, arguing for a flat Earth and published results of many experiments <laughs> that tested the curvature of water over long drainage ditches. Oh, okay. So like an exact replica of the size and scale of Earth. Yeah. Got it. Because that sounds like a legit experiment is actually my note. Oh, yeah. Good. Yeah. Good, yeah. good, good. Same page. <laughs> so one of his supporters was William Carpenter, and he published a masterpiece titled Theoretical Astronomy Examined and Exposed, Proving the Earth is Not a Globe Under the Name. And guess what his pen name was? Guess. Uh, Roundy McMounderson? No. His Flatty pen- McFlatterson. His pen name was Common Sense. Oh, boy. So he, he so wrote... So he went real left on that one. Yeah. He <laughs> wrote on proving that the Earth is, is flat. Under the pen name of Common, Common Sense. Sense. Yep. Um, I, yes. enjoy, I enjoy ironing as well. Maybe that's what he was aiming for. And we're just not smart enough to see the joke. Yeah. <laughs> P.S. There's no proof given. <laughs> what he did say was that the Nile River only falls afoot total over its entire distance and that wouldn't make sense if our world was round because wouldn't it curve it should fall more than a foot because it's like thousands of miles long (laughs) and his other probably my favorite argument is that if our world was a sphere a severe severe (laughs) severe severe spherical um, that a small model globe uh-huh. would be the most trusted navigational tool because it's an actual replica of our world. But no. People navigate by flat maps. So that proves that. Because it's not like flat maps are easier to pack or anything. Or you could put a lot more information. Like a map isn't the whole world usually when you're navigating. Yeah. It's small pieces. Yeah. That contain an increasing, like, a, a large amount of data. Yes. Yeah. Totes. I mean, I know every time I need to drive to New Brunswick, I pap my globe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Or, you know, at that point, he would be talking about sailing. So, like, yeah. because ship's captains and navigators brought sextons and, six sextons and maps. Yep. But not globes. Yep. Then, obviously, our world's flat. Totes. Checks out. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> uh, so, a bunch of other people in, like, the 1880s argued that the Earth was flat. And on a large part of this sort of period's arguments was tied to the Bible and scripture and that like good Christians obviously could not believe the world was round. Well, I was also thinking that was the era of the opium wars, but sure that too. (laughs) So that sort of wave of flat earth thinking, because it's sort of, why couldn't Christians think the earth is round? Bible's silent on the, because they actually pick and choose like most religious fanatics certain scripture pieces that they thought pointed to a flat earth. Oh. So, like, the same way you can justify, like, the earth started on, like, Tuesday the 4th of whatever May with, like, God created a squirrel first, that type of thing? Yeah. Got it. Okay. So, that wave, and it was actually kind of a resurgence, because there's a bunch of people who believed it in a bunch of societies. Um, It's sort of the interest in that declined after the, around the First World War, because people had other shit to deal with. (laughs) So there was this other resurgence of it in 1956. Samuel Shelton set up the International Flat Earth Research Society, better known as the Flat Earth Society, from Dover, UK. A lot of these people are British. I'm noticing the trend. There's a lot of British. And even now, people who are part of these societies tend to be either Americans or Brits. Brits. Well, white with a lot of money and a lot of time on their hands. Uh, his, her, there's also a couple of ladies. Oh, good. Yeah, British ladies <laughs> who, who created Women can societies. be idiots, too. That's what feminism's all about. Yes, <laughs> and they were. Um, so his, so this guy, his primary aim was to reach children before they were convinced of a round earth. <laughs> I don't want this guy anywhere near my children. <laughs> Not surprisingly, the space race of the 1960s eroded much of his support. Mm. Sadly, even the moon landing and the pictures from space couldn't kill this fucking idea. Of course not. So the followers and membership in the Flat Earth Society ebbed and flowed until 2004, when Daniel Shelton, no relation to the founder, created the website for the group. Oh boy. Daniel believed that no one has provided proof that the Earth is not flat. And that's his, his like, NASA, hill he's going to die on. Yeah, NASA's just like a big old shell game. To what end? Like, <laughs> we get to that. Okay, good. So as we've discovered with the rise of the internet has given everyone a voice. Yep. And connected people with non-mainstream views together. Now, this newfound connection can be great. Mm-hmm. But it also can be a collection of stupid people sharing stupid fucking ideas. <laughs> and as we have also talked about, the the internet, especially social media, has become an easy way to sp- spread pseudoscience and build stronger followings for these nutters. <laughs> I mean, I fully plan on covering jelly juice at some point in the future. <laughs> so flat earthers like anti-vaxxers have flourished online using that sort of leveling effect of social media mm-hmm. to their advantage. So for those who don't know what I'm talking about, the leveling effect of social media is sort of taking those pseudosciences 
and and making the words of experts seem less important and less valid so it's a lot of people going well your credentials well the leveling is actually that those like jenny mccarthy's have the same weight as As, yes that's what i mean like those pseudosciences have as much weight as the actual science yeah scientists and the actual proof yeah um so they have used that sort of leveling effect to their advantage this has become so prevalent that groups have had to stage tests to demonstrate the local curvatures of the earth why bother like why why waste the time the money the energy the giving a fuck like so this makes me shake my head as it does you yeah (laughs) and one of these demonstrations at the salton sea was attended by both sides so the people who are you know normal and the flat earthers so the tinfoil hat wearers and the non-tinfoil got it okay (laughs) Uh, so this encounter was recorded by the National Geographic Explorer, and if you could find it online, it's worth a watch. <laughs> um, so how this sort of movement started as heavily using Bible and Scripture, now, how have they stayed relevant? Because Bible and Scripture really isn't, like, sort of our jam for most, the, the for the popularity that Flat Earth has maintained is not indicative to the popularity of say scripture or the bible unless you're the deep south uh well what they've done is they they really couched it in speaking out against government and government agencies so they have gone with this conspiracy theory model especially the u.s government and nasa and now they are like i said conspiracy theorists awesome So they claim that NASA and other government agencies conspire to delude the public into believing the Earth is a a sphere, and that NASA really guards the Antarctic ice wall that surrounds the Earth. They believe NASA photoshops pictures of Earth because the oceans are different colors and the continent seems to be in different places in different photos. Kind of like somebody circling this round globe and taking photos of it from different angles. Yeah. Or, you know, light, times between. Seasons. Also, the time it takes to send a picture back. Yeah. Might be some graining. Clearly, you and I are part of the deep state on this. I know. (laughs) According to Flat Earthers, this is the ultimate conspiracy. (laughs) Okay. So you might like, I do, roll your eyes. And feel that someone is pulling, like, the ultimate prank on you. Like, this is, this whole fact that this is a real belief Yeah, feels like a really long game of uh, punked. Right. It's a long con, if you will. Yeah, a long con, for sure. But, as evident by, like, the seeming exhausted effort they put into, like, writing out their theories on their websites, defending their ideas in the media and on Twitter, it seems that at least some people really do believe that the earth is flat right it is 2019 how is this still a thing (laughs) how (laughs) how because it might be 2019 but stupidity is forever (laughs) so and these people are not like these people are some celebrities and i'm not saying that okay so they're not just like uneducated inbred people like playing their banjos not that all people playing banjos are inbred but yeah steve martin's got his lawyer writing you a letter right now yeah, sorry <laughs> you know the deliverance idea yes. <laughs> is what i'm going for um but there are some few celebrities who apparently are believers uh, a lot of these are basketball players so kyle irving uh shack 
and William Chandler are all have said that they, you know, that the Earth is flat. And then they've come out, of course, after, even though they've all doubled down on their beliefs a few times. And then they've come out, of course, and said, oh, joking. It was a social experiment. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, some of, like, these people have educations. Yeah. Because except for LeBron, most of them had to go to college before they went into the NBA. So these people have, like, fucking educations. Uh, the rapper B.O.B. Okay, I'm now going into the uneducated celebrity. <laughs> celebrity, yeah. quote unquote. Tila Tequila. Okay, well, <laughs> she's also a Nazi, so. <laughs> Freddie Flintoff, who was a British cricketer. A really high-level British cricketer. Apparently, he, he was the reason. a couple balls to the head at speed a couple of times. <laughs> Apparently, he was the reason they won the Ashes competition or something. I don't okay. know. I don't do cricket. I'm sorry for the one person who's... You're bowling me a googly, Andy. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and Sherry Shepard, former host of The View. Yeah, again, I mean... I know. I'm, <laughs> I admit not many of these people are road scholars. Yeah, we're talking like B to Z list here. <laughs> uh, there's a few odd things that flat earthers do believe in. One is climate change. Because, to quote them, you can't fight the science on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Even though most of the proof of climate change comes from NASA, NASA. which they believe is part of the ultimate conspiracy, Uh except for climate change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Science is great, except for when we've dug in on something dumb. Yeah. Uh, Evolution. Okay. Okay. And Einstein's theory of relativity. Which, if gravity doesn't exist as an illusion and we're actually accelerating up and things don't accelerate down, how does Einstein's theory of relativity still work? I have had that explained to me on multiple occasions from multiple people, and I've understood it for a grand total of five minutes after they've stopped explaining it. What I do remember is it's always described as being on a flat plane. Like, that's how they're describing it. But again, it is the up and down motion. Yeah. And I only so, remember the visuals, so maybe that's, I don't know. I think we're trying to add sensicalness to a nonsensical issue. So in a study published online March uh, 5th, 2014, in the American Journal of Political Science by Eric Oliver and Tom Woods from the University of Chicago, they found that about half of Americans endorse at least one conspiracy theory. So this ranges from JFK assassination to 9-11 being an inside job, to Flat Earth. And according to Oliver, they found that many people are willing to believe many ideas that are directly in contradiction to the dominant cultural narrative. That's how you end up with Trump, but yeah. Conspiratorial beliefs stem from a human tendency to perceive unseen forces at work, and this is known as magical thinking. Of course. Um, But I mean, that that sort of includes ghosts and stuff too. However, flat earthers are sort of weird and unique, whereas they don't really fit with other conspiracy theorist groups because they really only prescribe to one conspiracy theory. Like, usually, if someone is, like, you know... If you're going to go down that rabbit hole, you're going to go down the other four that you... Or, like, you know, because these people who believe that Earth is flat, they don't tend to believe uh, in other conspiracies, like... 9-11 9-11 being an inside job. Like, they don't believe in other government conspiracies. They don't tend to believe in UFOs or aliens or ghosts or ESP or anything right. else. They just tend to believe this one 
thing that the earth is flat and and believe that everybody else is bonkers for believing this other stuff which is hilarious so do you cover why they think it's a cover-up from the government no no i can't find that oh okay good yeah no no i haven't been able to find that i've read a lot of articles on this stuff so if you're a flat earther and still listening please do let us know yeah so so you know they don't believe in the devil or any of that stuff They, they just have one lane that diverges from the normal path and they really stick onto it I mean, it's kind of a harmless lane. Yes. Like, no flat earther so far is driving or is flying planes into buildings. No. I mean, they're pretty harmless, seemingly. They're just a little crazy. And I love it because it's uh, the never-ending gif that keeps on giving. Yeah. And gif. Like, (laughs) gif. Like, these, like, I, but I love the fact that they actually believe in climate change. Well, I mean, the science is all there, Andy. <laughs> From NASA. <laughs> it was part of their conspiracy. But anyway, so that's my rabbit hole down flat earthers. And it all started with an article about them going on a cruise. Them organizing a cruise for their believers. So one of my favorite podcasts is The Read with Kid Fury and Crystal West. And early on, they had a saying, like, you can be right and loud, but you can't be wrong and loud. And you can be wrong and quiet, but you shouldn't be right and quiet. So these people are both wrong and loud. Yeah. <laughs> and they can have it, but they need to be wrong and quiet. <laughs> and it's funny because, like, they are very loud, right? Like I said, yeah. like, they're exhaustive in their fleshing out their theories, although they're not all that fleshed out, to be honest. Um, like, like all conspiracy theorists, they're very vague, but they they, they just believe it to their core. Yeah. And I don't understand it. Like, I don't know if I believe anything to my core that much, but... Uh, right. Well, I believe to my core that my bank is not going to give me a pass on my mortgage this yes, month. True. So I got to hustle to get that payment together. That's the only thing I know is happening. Yeah. Death oh, and taxes. Yeah, I was going to say, and the government's coming for my taxes. <laughs> and then someday we'll die. Yeah. That's, uh, that's about it. Yeah. That and cruises are terrible. I Those four things right there. <laughs> So that is it for this episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. You can find us on our website at www.rabbitholespodcast.com. If you want to reach out with uh, ideas for rabbit holes you'd like us to dive down for you, or if you want to tell us about rabbit holes that you like diving down, our email is rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. On our website, you can visit our merch tab to pick up some of our lovely branded merch from the Redbubble store that we have, and you can visit our Patreon website and come on board as a patron of the show you get access to lots of fun content that way uh lots of our sort of bloopers outtakes other such fun things that we do Mm -hmm. other topics that we cover uh if you want to follow us on the socials you can find us on twitter at rabbit holes pod on instagram at rabbit holes podcast on facebook at rabbit holes podcast page what am i forgetting Oh, and Tinder. if you Tinder <laughs> Grinder, <laughs> we could be there too. We could. <laughs> if that means people will listen to us, I'm willing to pimp us out like nobody's business. Uh, if it's Grinder, Dan's gonna have to take one of the two. <laughs> True. <laughs> you don't know what that is, sweetie. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he never listens to it all the way through anyway. Um, (laughs) 
if you like what we're doing, uh, you can rate and review. I was listening to an old episode of um, Show Your Work with Lainey, and she's like, I am not too proud to beg for your reviews, and I am definitely not too proud to beg for reviews. <laughs> no, if Lainey's not too proud, we're like 800 steps behind that. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Please. Write us a review. Recommend us to your friends because that's how we uh, get listeners. You can find us on uh, Apple Podcasts, on Podbeam, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere that you can get uh, podcasts and streaming media. Absolutely. And in that theme of recommendations, I recommend you all subscribe to Imperfect Me mm-hmm. and hear more stories from uh, Callan's kind of network of women who have gone through rough times and have come out on the other end. And there's only one last thing to do tonight, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye.